Good morning, church family. It is wonderful to see all of you here this morning as we begin week two of our study of the gospel according to Mark. As today we will be looking specifically at only three verses, those verses being 9 through 11 in chapter 1. Now, as we saw last week, church, the author of this gospel, a man by the name of John Mark, he initially introduced us in his gospel to a very special individual, an individual by the name of John the Baptist. Now, if you can remember back to last week, church, Mark made it clear that this John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah, predicted by the prophet Isaiah and predicted by the prophet Malachi to, verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist, he did that, church, for he did it with great faithfulness and humility and zeal. And thus, verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now, why exactly were all these Jews going out to John to be baptized in the river Jordan? And the answer to that question is because John the Baptist was faithfully preaching to them a message of repentance, a message concerning the forgiveness of their sins. In essence, telling these Jewish people that they were sinners and that judgment and wrath and punishment and that of eternal condemnation awaited them unless they acknowledged their sins, confessed their sins, repented of their sins, and turned back to God as the only one who could ultimately forgive them of their sins. And the outward sign of their repentance was that they were to be baptized or immersed into the water at the River Jordan. And what was so striking about this church is that although droves and droves and droves of people were going out to John to the River Jordan to hear him preach and to be baptized by him, John the Baptist, he never forgot his role, his call, or his task in God's great plan of eternal redemption, that being for him to be the forerunner of the Lord and to prepare the way for the Messiah. Therefore, John proclaimed in verses 7 and 8 that after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For John knew, church, that in the end that his baptism with water was just a sign of the people's repentance whereas the one who was to come after him, the Messiah, the Christ, the very Son of God, that he would baptize God's people with the Holy Spirit, meaning the Messiah's baptism would infinitely supersede that of John's because all those who truly repented of their sins and placed their faith in the Messiah for the forgiveness of their sins, they would receive then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that church, that is the message that John the Baptist was called to herald, and thus that was the message that he preached throughout the entirety of his ministry as faithfully and humbly as he could as he prepared the way for the Lord. However, as we will see today, Brother Christian, Sister Christian, preaching to and baptizing sinners 
That was not all this humble herald of the Lord was called by God to do. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was baptized in the River Jordan in order to fulfill all righteousness for mankind. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was baptized in the River Jordan in order to fulfill all righteousness for mankind. Therefore, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to Mark chapter 1, where we will be looking at verses 9 through 11 together. And if you are joining us this morning and do not own a Bible, please know that is okay and that there is a Bible located in the chair directly in front of you with your name on it. Meaning feel free to just grab that Bible this morning, to keep that Bible, and to take that Bible home with you today. However, the only thing we ask, if indeed you take a Bible home with you today, is that you read it. Starting right here, right now, by turning to page 836, and joining us as we hear the Word of God together this morning. So again, church, we are in Mark chapter 1 this morning, looking at verses 9 through 11, where John Mark writes, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you prepare our minds and our hearts this morning to see Jesus Christ the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. Father, remove the scales from our eyes this morning, open our ears, soften our hearts so that we can see the beauty that you have given us in your word this morning. That Jesus Christ in his baptism fulfilled all righteousness for mankind and willingly identified himself with us. Sinners, transgressors of the law. Jesus Christ willingly was numbered with the transgressors. Father, I pray that you help my lisping, stammering tongue this morning and that you send your spirit. Lord, give me the words to speak to this dear church body, I pray. Let it be bold, let it be humble, and let it depend completely on you, Father, I pray. And let this entire service, our singing, our praying, our offering, communion, and your word being preached, be an acceptable offering to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, in his baptism, willingly identified himself with sinful man. 
Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, in his baptism, willingly identified himself with sinful man. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Mark opens here in verse 9 by informing his readers that in those days, or that during the time frame when John was baptizing, verse 5, all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem, that Jesus, the one who is, verse 1, the Christ, the Son of God, that he came, verse 9, from Nazareth of Galilee to John at the river Jordan. Now, this is an interesting tidbit from Mark here that he shares that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And the reason I say that is because last week in verse 5, we read that droves and droves and droves of Jewish people came out to be baptized by John from all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem, a.k.a. from the location where the temple was at, the location where the religious elites were at, and in essence, the location where the Jewish religious establishment was at which is then contrasted here by Mark with Jesus coming not from Judea, coming not from Jerusalem, coming not from the place where the quote-unquote religious elites were at, but instead coming, verse 9, from a small and quite frankly a despised town, a town by the name of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was so despised by the Jews of Judea church because, as R.T. France points out, the belief was that the Jews of Nazareth simply couldn't observe the rituals of the law due to their distance from the temple and because of their close proximity and intermixing with so many pagan Gentiles. However, as we see in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus, he lived in Nazareth. So that which was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And thus Jesus, he was raised in Nazareth, called a Nazarene, and just like all the other Nazarenes around him, he too was despised and rejected by man. And yet he, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of God, he humbly and meekly here comes out of this little and despised town known as Nazareth. Nazareth, in order, verse 9, to be baptized by John in the River Jordan. Now, as good Bible-believing and reading and interpreting Christians here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, I hope that last statement did indeed set off some kind of an alarm in your head this morning, or at least caused you to pause for a second and to think and to ask yourselves, wait a second, for why on earth did Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, who bore the sins of the world and who clothed the children of God in his perfect righteousness, for why did he desire to be baptized here by John the Baptist? For isn't John the Baptist only offering, verse 4, a baptism of repentance? And thus shouldn't John the Baptist here simply know his role, get out of the way, and let Jesus, you know, the Messiah, just baptize him. And quite honestly, church, that is exactly what John the Baptist tried to do. 
For as Matthew wrote in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, he would have prevented Jesus from being baptized, for he said to him that I need to be baptized by you. And yet, even after John tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized, Jesus still said to him in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, let it be so. Therefore, the question is, church, why does Jesus here the sinless Son of God, the one who has absolutely nothing that needs to be repented of, still desire a baptism from John the Baptist. And the answer to that question, church, it seems to appear to us again in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, where Jesus says that it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what exactly does that mean, that Jesus here desired to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness? And I think, church, that phrase, that it really has a two-pronged meaning to it. The first being, fundamentally, that for Jesus Christ to be able to fulfill all righteousness, that he must then completely and perfectly follow the will of his Father. Now, let me explain what I mean by that like this, church. So whenever I meet with individuals who want to become members here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, typically I ask them a number of different questions. One of the questions that I ask them, though, is for them to briefly explain to me the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if ever there is a loving modification or addition that needs to be made, It never, church, has to do with someone failing to articulate that Jesus died on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for their sins. For everyone I have ever interviewed, church, always, always, always gets that part of the gospel right, that Jesus died for our sins as a propitiation for our sins so that we could be forgiven of our sins. However, however, what is once in a while left out is the other side of the double imputation coin, if you will, or the fact that not only did Jesus Christ have our sins imputed to him when he died in our place as our very substitute on that old rugged cross, but that also through faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness is then imputed to us so that we can be justified and stand as righteous before the presence of our holy God forever. However, church, that is only possible if Jesus Christ does indeed keep perfectly the law of God, follow flawlessly the will of God, and never, ever, ever transgress any of the commandments of God. And thus, since God sent John the Baptist to baptize his people, John 1.33, then it was Jesus' willing desire to be baptized by John so that ultimately the perfect righteousness of the Son of God could then be imputed onto the children of God. Make sense, church? However, the second reason as to why Jesus Christ was baptized is this to perfectly identify himself with sinful humanity, to perfectly identify himself with sinful humanity. David Burgess shared that in the play The Deputy by Rolf Hockot, a young priest discovers the truth about the Jewish extermination camps. 
and thus he makes it his mission to stop all the awful orders that were keeping in motion the extermination of the Jewish people. For he appeared before everyone in authority around him and finally even confronted the Pope, all of which turned a deaf ear to him or pleaded some excuse that removed them from any responsibility. Therefore, when all avenues of protest were exhausted, the hero of the play, he simply sewed the identifying six-pointed star onto his sleeve and presented himself at one of the extermination camps where he moved to the oven with the others whose calls he had taken upon himself. So too did Jesus Christ Church, when he was being baptized by John, identified himself with sinners and willingly accepted their punishment and death. However, unlike Hockelt's hero in the play, Jesus, he went into death so that all sinners could have life through him and have it, church more abundantly. You see, brother Christian, sister Christian, Jesus Christ, our Savior, he not only identified with his people and that he was born into this world in a stable rood where he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, but he also identified with his people and that he was numbered with his people, stricken with the sins of his people in order to ultimately make intercession for his people, Isaiah 53, or as John MacArthur put it, that Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness, not only through his life of perfect obedience, but also through his substitutionary death on the cross in which God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, in that Jesus Christ would live the life for sinners that they could not live, pay the price for sinners that they could not pay, and thus fulfill all righteousness for sinful man so that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, sinful man, though he may die, shall live again. Thus, thanks be to God this morning, church, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was willing to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, keep the law on our behalf, be numbered with the transgressors on our behalf, and to lay down his life and to take it back up again, also that God, being rich in mercy, could make a us alive together in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number two, which is Jesus Christ at his baptism was anointed by the Holy Spirit and declared by God the Father to be his beloved Son. Jesus Christ, at his baptism, was anointed by the Holy Spirit and declared by God the Father to be his beloved Son. Verses 10 and 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. And thus, when John the Baptist Church brings Jesus up out of the water at his baptism, it says in verse 10 that immediately he, Jesus, saw the heavens being 
torn open. And you almost expect here, church, from the language being used that some kind of powerful flash of light or some kind of mighty lightning bolt or some kind of brilliant blaze of glory is about to just come screaming out of the sky in celebration over the baptism of Jesus Christ. And yet amidst this dramatic change of scenery, Mark simply writes in verse 10, that coming from the heavens is the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. Now please note here, church, it does not say that the Holy Spirit was a dove, but the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus in a way that was like a dove, in a way that was gentle and calm and kind and noble. And as Matthew 3 states, the Holy Spirit then rested on Jesus. Thus fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 42, which reads, I have put my spirit upon him. And thus at the baptism of Jesus Christ, church, we see the Holy Spirit here anointing Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and as the suffering servant who was to come and empowering Jesus in the flesh for this ministry. This ministry of fulfilling all righteousness for sinful man, of suffering and dying and rising again for sinful man, and of defeating the ultimate enemy for sinful man, meaning the destroying of the devil, the defeating of the deceiver, the trouncing of the tempter, the gutting of the God of this age, and the absolute crushing of the serpent's head once and for all. However, church, the divine activity at the baptism of Jesus Christ, it does not end there. Because following the anointing of Jesus as the Messiah, God the Father, then, he comes onto the scene, if you will, and pronounces in verse 11 that this man named Jesus, that you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, as numerous scholars have pointed out to your church, this verse, verse 11, potentially is alluding to three different Old Testament texts. Those texts being Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where God is affirming that the Messiah, or the one who would rule over all the nations, would ultimately be God's son. Genesis 22, 2, or the story where Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, his son in whom he so deeply loved, and finally, Isaiah 42.1, or the first of the four servant songs, indicating that the predicted suffering servant would indeed be the Lord's chosen one in whom he finds delight in. Therefore, if you add all that up, church, and those three illusions are present, then what you get, as Mark Strauss explains, is that in this single announcement from God that you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased, it is in essence God making the extraordinary claim that this man named Jesus is the promised Messiah and the Son of God who will ultimately offer himself as a sacrifice for his people. And thus, is it any wonder, church, why God the Father loves his son, Jesus Christ? 
For as Jesus said in John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. For although Jesus Christ Church knew perfectly the very will of God and knew exactly the type of pain and suffering and wrath that he would have to bear for the sins of the world, Isaiah 50, Jesus Christ, in perfect obedience to God the Father, was still willing to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him have the chastisement that brought us peace so that with his wounds we could be healed, Isaiah 53. For the suffering servant church, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, he willingly accepted the ministry to be rejected, killed, and be a ransom for many so that people groups from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation could live eternally through him. For that church, that is why the Father can boldly proclaim that this Jesus is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And thus, what we ultimately have here, church, is the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus Christ, whereby the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are present so that the Father could affirm that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God and so that the Holy Spirit could anoint Jesus for the very ministry of saving sinners from their sin. And thus, as we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. And non-Christian, in light of everything that I shared with you this morning, I really want to take a moment to encourage you. Because although non-Christian, you are still a sinner, and that you do not seek the things of God, do not love the commandments of God, and currently stand condemned before your very God, I want to encourage you this morning, non-Christian, by letting you know that Jesus Christ is way, way, way better at saving than you are at sinning. Because quite frankly, non-Christian, you are just a mere man. Whereas the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, he truly is the Son of God, who literally came into this world, non-Christian, some 2,000 years ago, not to judge sinners, but in order to save them from their very sins. And he did that, non-Christian, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man, in that he, Jesus Christ, broke into this world, non-Christian, as truly God and as truly man and lived for us here on earth the life that we could never live. Meaning although he was tempted by sin just like you and I, Jesus Christ, he never sinned. For the life Jesus Christ lived here on earth was sinless and righteous and holy and good. And thus he completely and perfectly fulfilled the law of God, non-Christian, and he did it for the children of God. However, non-Christian, not only did he, Jesus Christ, come into this world to keep the law of God for the children of God, but he also came into this world to be numbered with the transgressors, to take their sins upon himself and to be a sacrifice on their behalf. And he, Jesus Christ, did that non-Christian by being crucified on a cross at Calvary and by dying a sinner's death in their very place as their very substitute. 
However, and please hear me on this, non-Christian, being that Jesus Christ was a perfect and spotless and sinless sacrifice, his sacrificial work on the cross, it then appeased the wrath of a holy God toward his sinful children. And thus, three days later, Jesus Christ, he was raised for our justification. Meaning, three days later, Jesus Christ, he didn't just stay dead in the grave, but instead he rose from the grave and he defeated sin and destroyed death and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you then in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. For non-Christian, please understand on this day that you can have an advocate with the Father and that his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who can forgive you of your sin, cleanse you of your sin, clothe you in his perfect life, and bring you back into fellowship with God forever. Therefore, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn to the Son of God and place your faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can forgive you of your sin and give you the gift of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, last week as we close, I lovingly exhorted you all to probe and to examine and to inspect your hearts as Christians to make sure that you have truly repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sins. Because I want to do everything in my power, church, to make sure that we don't have any members here who think that they were somehow saved because of some words they repeated in Sunday school or because of some walk they took during an altar call or because of some water they were dunked in at summer camp, but instead realize that man can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. However, on the flip side of that church, I also realize that there are Christians out there who have truly repented of their sins, who have truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and who have truly been born again, and yet still wonder if God really loves them, and if he really is going to save them. Therefore, brother Christian, sister Christian, if you are struggling this morning to believe that your heavenly Father does indeed love you and will ultimately save you, then this closing is for you. Or, if you just want to be able to leave here today, Christian, knowing and delighting and rejoicing in how much your heavenly Father does indeed truly love you, and honestly, who wouldn't want that? then again, this closing is most definitely for you. Because God the Father, he quite clearly affirmed in verse 11 that he, Jesus Christ, is my beloved son, my dear son, and my son in whom I love. 
which you might be sitting there this morning thinking, yes, Pastor West, we saw that. But what exactly does that have to do with God the Father's love for us? Since God the Father here is talking about his love for his son, Jesus Christ, and not about us. Last week, church, if you remember, I read from Romans chapter 8, verse 9, which says that if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, then they do not belong to him. However, if I was to continue to read on, you would hear that if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Therefore, do you not realize this about yourself, brother Christian, sister Christian, that Jesus Christ is in you, 2 Corinthians 13, and that you have been crucified with Jesus Christ, and thus it is no longer you who live, but Jesus Christ who lives in you, Galatians chapter 2. And thus, if God the Father loves the Son, Jesus Christ, and if Jesus Christ is in you, Christian, as in he dwells in you, abides in you, and now lives inside of you, then let me declare to you this morning, Christian, that God the Father then, that he also loves you. Oh, to paraphrase J.C. Ryle, God the Father, he sees us, Christian, as members of his beloved Son, and thus sees no blemish in us, for he beholds us as in Christ, clothed in his righteousness and invested with his merit. Therefore, when the holy eye of God looks at us in Christ, he is well pleased. Thus, do not buy the lie this morning, Christian, that your heavenly Father does not love you or care about you or that he has turned his back on you because for you to believe that is to believe that God does not love his own son, Jesus Christ. And for you to believe that is to call God a liar. And brother Christian, sister Christian, you know that our God does not lie. Therefore, no matter what you are facing today, Christian, whether it be the pain of rejection, the embarrassment of past sins, the fear of what others think about you, the torment of the world around you, or anything else, please grasp this morning that God the Father, that he loves you, Christian, just as he loves his son, Jesus Christ, John 17, 23. For comprehend this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, with all the saints present here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love that God the Father has for you. For God the Father, he loves his son. Therefore, no matter how you might be feeling this morning, Christian, if you are in Christ and if Jesus Christ abides in you, then the Father will be well pleased with you, Christian, now and forevermore. Thus, it is my prayer that if any brother or sister in Christ this morning is struggling with the lie that their heavenly Father does not love them, Lord, let this text be a balm to their soul this morning. For not only have we been buried with Jesus Christ by baptism into death, but we have also been raised with Christ. We are heirs with Christ, and we have the Spirit of Christ now abiding in us. Therefore, when God the Father sees us now, Christian, he doesn't see us as we once were, but instead he sees us as those clothed in the perfect righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, thank you, Jesus. 
Jesus for defeating the enemy who once ruled over our hearts and for making us your own. All so that we could be reconciled back into fellowship with our heavenly father and be loved perfectly by him forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you love your Son. We all know that. And yet we have been crucified with Christ, for it is no longer we who live, but Jesus Christ who lives in us. For the life we live now in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who died for us. Father, you love us. Help us to see that love you have for us, the height, length, depth of it all. Cling to it, cherish it. No matter how we may feel this morning, let us understand that you, Father, have loved us. Father, you sent your Son into this world who identified us, taking on flesh, identified us, identified with us as sinners and then ultimately identified with us on the cross, dying for our sins. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life. Father, let us cling to that truth this morning, I pray, knowing that we are saved by Christ, loved by Christ, and that we are heirs with your Son, Jesus Christ. Thus to you be the glory, God, forever and ever. Amen.